Good morning and welcome to Renaissance Church. I want to tell you where we've been. Uh, For almost two months now, we have been focusing on some instruction that came from the Apostle Peter, where he addressed uh, himself to a group who he wanted to see grow in their faith. Uh, Peter looked at the world, as many of us will have looked at the world, and knew that what it needed was faith which actually works. And so the way that Peter instructed those to whom he wrote was to present to them a series of virtues, which, this was his promise, which if belonged to the people who he addressed, would keep their faith from being ineffective and unfruitful. Uh, The virtues are presented in just such a way that each successive virtue supports the one that comes prior. And today we come toward the end of the list, and I want to read it to you, and I want you to pay attention, and then we'll dwell on the virtue for today. This is from 2 Peter, uh, verse 5 through 7 reads like this in, in chapter 1. You must make every effort to support your faith with goodness, and your goodness with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with endurance, and endurance with godliness, and godliness with mutual affection, and mutual affection with love. If we were to think for a moment of Peter as if he were an architect, what we've just read now are the designs for how to build a home in which to live where our faith thrives and grows so that each one of us find ourselves following Jesus in such a way that our faith changes us and the world around us. Use your imagination for a moment. Picture your dream house. Uh, Imagine, if you would, that each one of the virtues that we've described in these months past is another room which if you yourself were able to construct and furnish would provide you the opportunity to live in such a way that your faith caused you and the people around you to experience life differently. Uh, As any architect knows, the most important part of the house is the foundation. And no matter how well designed the living room is and the dining room, if there's a, a rec room or a phenomenal family room where you can have the very best relationship with your family, all of that can be perfect. But if the foundation isn't right, then the whole house is worthless. We've spent time over these last five weeks describing and trying to understand virtues like goodness and self-control, endurance, godliness. These are not so much ideas for how to improve yourself a little, but are better thought of as the place where you are meant to live, where you yourself are meant to dwell, like a home. Now, if you imagine that home in all of its virtue, you know that that it's only as good as the foundation. And today we come to one of the last two words in Peter's lists, both of which are Greek words for love. And and today, what's translated here as mutual affection. In Peter's mind, listen now, in Peter's mind, the thing which holds everything up is friendship. And beneath that love, Mutual affection here comes from the word Philadelphia in Greek. Have you been to Philadelphia? Don't think of that city for a moment. In Greek, Philadelphia means brotherly love. 
or, or the love that exists between sisters. And not in the, in the blood relative sense, but in the sense of being convinced that this other person who I get to share life with is, please listen now, is the place where the most important thing which I do as a follower of Jesus will actually unfold. This is utterly remarkable when you pause and consider the truth that of the virtues which Peter lays out which make faith work and keep it from being ineffective and unfruitful, at the very bottom are two which are, come down to love and this one here, Philadelphia, brotherly love, sisterly love, holds up the previous virtues in such a way that without this virtue, they fall apart. Friendship. Now, Peter didn't invent this idea on his own. He ordered the list like this because of the person who most profoundly shaped his understanding of God. Any guesses who that was? One person guessed very quietly, Jesus. You are totally right. Jesus. When Peter was with his master, Jesus, he learned that the central thing in Christian faith is love. The most important thing around which everything else revolves is love. The most important thing that God has for any one of us, if we want to know what matters most, is love. Jesus said that over and over again to his disciples. And in particular, the kind of love that exists between true friends, that is among the most important things that any one of us can pursue. I want you to see this first out of Jesus' own mouth. In John chapter 15, uh, Jesus is right at the very end of his life. He's going to die this very night and he has his disciples together and he teaches them like this. Look at what he says in John 15. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus boiled everything down to the way this group decided to be with each other. How they lived with each other was the most important thing. That you love one another as I have loved you. And then he went on to add, no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. There you have it right out of Jesus' mouth. The most important of all the virtues is love, and the most important love is the love that exists between friends. That is that if you could compare every other value in your entire life, your career, your education, your possessions, all of the accomplishments you've ever achieved, how high you climbed the ladder compared to other people, everything, whatever you set on one side, beside it, according to Jesus, the greatest thing of all is to love your friends in the way that he wants you to. Now, I want you to understand about me, right at the start this morning, that without any question, my life has proved to me the truth of this fact that the most important thing is to love your friends. And the way it's proved that to me is, is this, it's very simple, that the faith that I have today over these last 30 years has depended on more than anything else the friends that God has given to love me and for me to love. I wonder if there's anyone else in here who would say that this morning. I see a few of you. You don't want to say it too loudly. You don't want people to be jealous. <laughs> Friendship, for me, has been the single most important thing that God has given me in my life, period. I want you to look at this picture here. Uh, this is a picture of me and my friend Adam in Switzerland in 2001. Does my friend Adam look happy to be sitting beside me? 
He's got that scowl on his face probably because I had lured him away from the studies which we were supposed to be doing to pursue some ill-fated adventure that probably ended badly. We were with a group of about eight graduate students from Princeton. That summer, we were in Switzerland for a month and a half to study the Swiss theologian Karl Barth. Every morning, we would have working groups together and study. In the late afternoons, we'd go and have fun together. At the end of the first month, we got on a train from Basel to a small village in the Alps called Leuenberg. And we departed from the train and made our way up a very steep and windy hill to the conference center up at the top, where we were joined by uh, literally hundreds of other students from all over the world who were there together to study this theologian with us. I have my notebook from the conference where I actually wrote my notes. Did anybody see a little black book? Is it over there? No? Well, I got a copy of it here. It would be way better if you saw me holding the leather thing. Imagine I'm holding a leather journal right now. Huh? This is what I wrote when the conference began. The conference has begun, and I'm presently sitting in a large room full of Germans. There is a professor who has been lecturing for around 15 minutes, and I simply have no idea what he is saying. I understand almost nothing. Now, he was lecturing in high academic German. To become a graduate student, I had to show that I could read German, which I could, but his lecture to me was unintelligible. I wrote, really, it's like I'm a dog and I'm trying to understand human speech. <laughs> I, I told this to my son. He said, Dad, you know, uh, dogs can understand some of what humans say. Yes, of course. That's what it was like for me. <laughs> The second day, I said to my friend Adam, don't you think our time would be better spent if we went back into Basel tomorrow night? There's a five-star restaurant there, Le Train Bleu, that I read about. What if I get us reservations and we sneak out of here tomorrow night? It didn't take much convincing. The next night, uh, after the next afternoon, we were on the train from Leuenberg back into Basel. We walked uh, the, long, the long trek down that mountainside, side by side, in the bright sunlight, and the views off the side of the road were the most magnificent I had ever seen. It was scary. There were no guardrails. It dropped hundreds of feet, but you could see for miles. And it was the perfect place for a walk with a true friend. Have you ever walked with a true friend? I want you to think about that for a moment. If you have, according to Jesus, that's the most important thing that you can do. It's the greatest love. As we walked along, I shared with Adam about some of the hurt that people had put upon me that I had not been able to talk with anyone else about because it was too difficult. And he listened. And as I described the pain that I had been through, I saw his fists clench like he wanted to fight for me. I told him about uh, the confusion that was before me. I didn't know that I should continue in academic theology. He listened and gave me his perspective on me, which I needed because I can't see myself like my friends can. As we walked further down, he shared with me some of the things that he had seen me doing that were wrong. He said things to me that I didn't want to hear, but he said them and I needed them. He was my friend. We made it into Basel and we went into the Le Train Bleu and we came in and there was a glass case filled with fine hand-rolled cigars. A man in a white tuxedo asked us to pick them out. At the end of the meal, he delivered them to us on a silver platter. 
I had a rack of lamb, a fine bottle of wine, all paid for by Princeton, of course. It was the most magnificent meal. We talked about life together. We laughed together about things behind us. We dreamt together about the future that was before us. Me, out of academic theology. Adam, into teaching. We shared difficult things together in that meal. It was so splendid. We barely caught the last train back to Leuenberg. We came to the train station. We disembarked and began to walk away. And as we turned around the first bend and the lights from the station faded into the background, we were surprised to find ourselves in total and utter darkness as we had to walk this long road that had cliffs on each side, depending on where you were, up this mountain. Have you ever been in total darkness? I mean, you put your hand in front of your face and you can't see anything at all. I was as scared as I'd ever been in my life up to that point. Our shuffling along finally stopped. We were there side by side. I think I heard a faint whimper when something brushed against my side. And then, Christian, would you please hold my hand? Don't tell anybody. <laughs> I promise, Adam, I'll never tell anybody as long as we live. <laughs> and we slowly walked up. We talked for five hours until, until sunrise the next morning. I want you to get this. A friend is someone who extends her hand to you freely. A friend is someone whose fists become clenched when you're back up against the wall and you're under attack and you don't have the strength to fight off the foe. That's what a friend is. A friend is someone who will walk beside you in the dark, no matter how scary or how terrifying or how dangerous or how complete the dark is. That's what a friend is. And the greatest thing is the love that exists between friends. And that's not my opinion. That is the word of Jesus. And wherever you are with Jesus, consider it. What if it's true? What if the most important thing that any one of us can invest in is our friends? None of the other things that we go mad trying to pursue, but a walk together or a conversation or a meal or a challenge or an encouragement. What if that's the most important thing there is? Uh, look at this quote right here. Without friends, no one would choose to live though he had all other goods. Aristotle wrote that, the great philosopher, the most incredible thinker up until his point. He wrote that 400 years before Jesus came. The most important work that he had on ethics, the Nicomachean ethics, 30% of it is about friendship. And in it, he takes time to distinguish between this kind of friendship and that kind. He's very careful to point out that some friendships are not true while others are. You know that, don't you? Even as I talk about friendship and I share about my friend Adam, I'm sure there are some of you who have memories of false friends who hurt you so deeply you're afraid to ever try again. Am I right about that? Aristotle named three different kinds of friendship. The first he called friendships of utility. That is, relationships that one person pursues because of how they will be useful to him or what she will get from finding that friend. Now she is interested in horseback riding. She meets someone who works on a farm and so she becomes friends in order to gain access to the horses. That is a relationship of utility. Most friendships 
Most of them are about utility. And the trouble with those is they're not real. They never last. When the interest changes or the access to the horses go away, so does the friendship. That's the first kind. Uh, like it, he names a second kind, friendships of pleasure. These are, quite simply, relationships with one, which one person pursues only because of the pleasure that they cause him. He finds friends who always agree with him, who have every opinion just like his, who only say flattering things about him, who make him feel good about himself and never say a challenging word, who build, who build him up and flatter him so that he always feels better about himself because of what they say. Again, this is a very common kind of friendship. The truth about these friendships is they never last because when the truth does emerge, the friendship ends. Those are the first two kind he names. These are false. Both share this quality that they center first and foremost on the individual who wants to get something. By contrast, Aristotle says true friendship is the relationship which a person gets involved in in order not to receive, but to give. Now think of it for a moment. Now chase out of your mind all of those friends who have, in your experience, really just used you or come alongside because they want to get pleasure from you. Let them go. And now think of the one or two friends or three friends that God has put in your path that maybe he is inviting you this morning to consider how you might become a true friend by giving something to that person. And then listen now, according to Jesus, this is the most important thing that you can do. According to Peter, this is the foundation that's gonna allow you to build the house where your faith actually works, where your goodness and your godliness and your self-control and your endurance and your knowledge actually become what matters in the world when you start laying down the brick and mortar of loving your friends. Those who wish well to their friends for their sake are most truly friends. That's also Aristotle. Not the person who tries to acquire, but the person who chooses to give. The person who comes to the friend and says, I follow Jesus, and I know that Jesus says the most important thing in all of my faith is love, and I know that Jesus says the most important thing in all of my love is what I do for my friends, and so now I'm gonna get busy working at loving my friends. If you would do that, you'd be ready to have a great home to live in. And a home that's great, not just because it's good for you, but because you will finally become what the world needs when you have that foundation. So how do you do it? Come back to what Jesus said in John 15. Look at the singular phrase there. It all comes down to what he means by lay down one's life. You might think you know what that means because you've read it before and you know that within hours of saying this, Jesus literally dies for his friends. And so to you, it's always meant the greatest love that someone can have is to die for his friends like Jesus died for his friends. The truth about it is there are five very common phrases in Greek, all of which mean to give your life as a sacrifice for another person so that you end up dead. And Jesus does not use one of them here. If he wanted to say die for your friends, he would have used one of them. He didn't want to say that because that's not what he means. Here he uses a little Greek word, tithami. And what it means, literally, to lay down one's life. Tithami means to take what is in your hands and to put it down. Or to lay it before another person. So that it is no longer at your disposal, but now it is at their disposal. So that it is no longer in your control, 
but you have chosen to put it under their control. It's always a risk. It's always a hazard. But to tithami, to put something down before another, means to choose that you are going to trust them with what you have because you believe it will be to their benefit, even if it's to your harm and regardless of whatever the cost is. To lay one's life down does not mean, first of all, to die for, but rather to live for in such a way that you have given the friend what that friend needs. That is the greatest love, to lay one's life down for one's friends. It is the foundation, according to the architect Peter. Philadelphia will support the rest of these. Now, I, I am very keen on doing what I can this morning to help you more practically do what you're hearing from Peter and Jesus than if I just tell you you should lay your life down. If we want to know exactly what Jesus means when he says that here, we thankfully have three other instances of this phrase being used in the New Testament where we can see exactly what it looks like to lay one's life down if only we will let our attention be drawn to those other phrases. That is John who wrote these words of Jesus. And in John's gospel and in his other writings, it turns out that he uses this phrase, lay one's life down, three additional times. And what, here's what we're gonna do. We're going to look at each one to see how we might do what Jesus says is the greatest thing. And so I want you to let into your mind come again two or three friends. If it's someone who wasn't a good friend, let that go for now. Think of someone who God might be inviting you to be a friend to. Maybe they're sitting beside you. Maybe it's your spouse. And you should be best friends with your spouse. Maybe it's a neighbor or a coworker, someone in the church. And I really want you to think of somebody, someone at school. In the first letter that John wrote, it's the first time he uses the phrase, lay down your life. Listen. This is 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. There's the first time. Remember, it does not mean simply die for. He means to say, Jesus put his life at our disposal and therefore we should also put our lives at each other's disposal. And so there's no ambiguity. He immediately follows that guidance with a picture of what it looks like. And he continues in verse 17, how does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? The answer is God's love doesn't abide in that person. Because if you have the world's goods in your hands, something that is valuable in the world, and you see a brother or sister, someone with whom you can share brotherly or sisterly love, and you choose not to give it to them, the truth is you are acting like a friend who is only in it for the utility or the pleasure and not yet for what true friendship is. You've not yet decided to lay your life down for them as you're meant to. Little children, John continues, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Enough of love only in word. Enough of love only in speech. Away with it. I don't care what you say. But love me by opening your hands for me 
And let me love you by giving you the thing that I have which you need. And then I will be laying my life down for you. That's the first picture of what it looks like to lay down your life. Laying down your life looks like open hands. And let's be very concrete about it. Picture it. You have what your friend needs in your hands. And to love them as Jesus says you ought to is to choose to open your hands to them and give them what you have. Do you have food which they don't have or money which they don't have or a family which they don't have because they're lonely or a dining room table with laughter around it and they don't have it? Whatever you have, to be a friend is to lay your life down, to open your hands to them and share what you have. Isn't that simple and beautiful? I'm getting emotional because the truth about me, as I said at the start, is I am who I am because friends have opened their hands to me. And I'm so thankful. And I've got the chance to do that with others. And it's the best thing in the whole world. Jesus meant it. Here, the second place that we find it, after John wrote his letters, then he took his pen and he wrote the gospel that we have now. And before that passage in 15, in John chapter 10, we see the second place where he uses the phrase, lay down one's life. He's describing the difference between himself and other so-called friends for the disciples. And he uses the image of a shepherd so that he's like a shepherd and they're like sheep. Listen to what he says in John chapter 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Think of it. The good shepherd has something in his hands with the sheep need and he's willing to put it at their disposal. He goes on to specify exactly what it looks like to lay your life down in this way when he contrasts himself with the hired hand, who is not the good shepherd. In verse, I can't see. Too emotional. In verse 12, the hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep. And he runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. The hired hand is all about utility and all about pleasure. And then Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And let's not be too fancy here. What it means to lay your life down for your friends in this second picture is to stay put when the wolves come. And anyone who's lived a life, a real life, knows what it's like to be threatened by the wolves. I mean when your life was going along well and all of a sudden there's some adversary who comes against you. Maybe it's your parents got divorced and now it's like there's wolves attacking you and you need a friend who will not run away but will stand between you and that pain with his fists clenched as you're back up against the wall. And please understand, the prevalence of divorce in our day is high, right? And it's hard for kids. It's like a wolf. Or a wolf is depression when it rears its ugly head and you can't even get out of bed. And the friend is the one who calls and does not run away because you're no longer useful or pleasurable. But instead, they insert themselves between you and the depression and they raise their arms. Or maybe it's infidelity in the marriage. Or, or, or all of a sudden, the mask comes off and your addiction, which you've always hid, is plain to this one person and that is a raging beast. And it will kill you. But your friend is the one who doesn't run away when the wolf comes. Laying down your life looks like clenched fists. Ready to fight. This is the most important thing according to Jesus. Now I weep because I'm alive because my friends didn't run when the wolves came. Adam, 
Vito, my dear friend Michelle, and many others besides. Laying your life down looks like clenched fists. Here's the last one. In chapter 13 of John, this is right after Jesus shares the Last Supper with his friends. After he humiliates himself by scrubbing their dirty feet for them. After he does that, he tells them, I'm your master, but what I've done for you is what love looks like. You should do this for each other. He's teaching them over and over again about love. This is my new command. This is how everyone will know you're my follower, the way you love each other. Do nothing else first but love each other. He goes on and on and on. And then he breaks the news to them with clarity. All together, he says, tonight, this very night, I'm going to have to go to a place where none of you can follow me. And of course, he's talking about his death. He's talking about the road that, listen, that Jesus himself has to walk, which, if you trust the Bible, is so difficult that Jesus breaks down and pleads with his heavenly Father to say, I can't possibly walk this road by myself. And after telling all of them this, Peter, the one who's been our teacher for these last months, he grabs Jesus. He takes him aside by himself And he says very plainly, this is verse 36 of chapter 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And he's asking because he doesn't care where it is. He means to go with him because he's a friend, no matter where. Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Jesus means to say, not just that he's going to die, but that the road he has to walk is far too hard for any human person to walk with him. He has to bear the weight of the sin on his shoulders and die on the cross, even though he's innocent. And Peter's response, verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And what he means by that is no matter where you have to walk, I will be right beside you. I don't care what it does to my reputation. I don't care what it does to my well-being. I don't care if the rest of the world rejects me. You're my friend and I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere with you, shoulder to shoulder. If it ruins me in relation to everyone else, I'm with you. If it makes my life impossibly difficult, I'm with you. No matter what, teeth on me. I'm gonna lay my life down for you. Laying your life down looks like shoulder to shoulder. All three of them. It looks like opening hands and and raised fists that are clenched and shoulder to shoulder no matter how dark and terrifying the road is. And I know it. I know it so well. I wish it weren't true as much as you do that every single one of you is going to have to walk a road that is far too hard for you to walk. I know it. And some of you are on that road right now when you think I'm the only one. And some of you have been on a road and you're going to be again. All of us. We need the greatest love, which is the love of a friend to walk beside us. And all of us are invited to do the most important thing so that the house we build when we work in a faith which works, works in the world magnificently. And that is to build the foundation on the simple virtue of Philadelphia, brotherly, sisterly love. Whether it's with a family member or a coworker or someone that's new to you in this church because you just came to this church or a friend who's gonna walk beside you on a dark road in Switzerland when you're playing hooky from an academic conference. Love is open hands and clenched fists and shoulder to shoulder in the dark. 
You know, I, you might think less of me because I told the story even though I promised I never would. It's not the first time I've told it either. <laughs> About 10 years after leaving Switzerland, my friend Adam became a professor. He got his PhD, Dr. Nieder, out in Whitworth where he teaches to this very day. Every student that gets him as a teacher is lucky. He's a magnificent teacher. I began to work with young people in what became a church, and then I got invited back to Princeton to become an adjunct faculty member where I taught hundreds of graduate students. I was lecturing, and I decided to share that story with the students to tell them how magnificent I think Christian faith is because of at the center of our faith is this call to be friends. The class listened attentively. When I finished, everyone left except for one student who stayed behind. He approached me after. Dr. Nieder was my teacher at Whitworth in undergraduate studies. He knew my friend. I immediately thought, you're so lucky to have him. He said, he told us the same story one lecture. <laughs> but when he told the story, it was you who whimpered and asked to hold hands and made him promise never to tell it. <laughs> and only me and Adam and God himself will ever know the truth. <laughs> there is only one reason that Adam could give me his hand as he did on that path and many times after. And there's only one reason why Adam could truly, and he has, lay his life down by staying put when the wolves came against me, as he has. And only one reason why he has been able to walk with me shoulder to shoulder, and you must get this, it's the most important thing. It's because Adam has decided fully and totally to allow Jesus to love him. And if you want to be a friend to others, the first step is to recognize that Jesus, the Lord of all, has already come to you and laid his life down for you, and that means that he's come to you with all the riches of heaven and earth in his hands, and he has decided to open his hands to you and give you everything you need. All the riches of heaven and earth. Jesus holds them and he comes to every one of us and he says, here, I wanna be, I wanna be the one who lays my life down for you. It's yours, take it. And Jesus Christ himself has come right to where we are, where we face the wolves and at every moment he is standing right there ready to interpose himself between those terrors and us. And he has done it. He's raised his fist by coming into the world, God incarnate, so that he could defeat the strongest foe, which like a beast is at our throat, the foe of sin and death. And Jesus defeated that wolf. He grabbed it by the jaws and tore it apart. He did that on Calvary for every one of us. He did it. And he's done that for us and all we need to do is accept it. He's walked the lonely, dark road which we ourselves, no matter how adamantly we promised to follow him, could never walk down. And he's walked it all the way to the cross for us so that we ourselves are free from all the sin and misery that we ourselves have been responsible for in our past. Do you know that after Peter swore that he would lay his life down for Jesus, it wasn't but hours later that he was pretending he didn't even know the man. The only reason that Peter could pull himself together and teach you and me about love is because Jesus loved him first. And it's true for you too. 
And if you've been ambivalent in the past about Jesus, you don't know what to think about him. Let me tell you what to think about him. He is the friend of every sinner. He is the one who comes onto the road and says, here's my hand. I'll stand between you and the wolves and I'll lay my life down for you so that, not for nothing, so that you can live for me and here's what Jesus invites you to do as you live for him. Love your friends. Lay your life down for your friends. Thank God. Let's pray with each other. Come on, let's pray. God, I'm so utterly grateful for the friends that you've given me in my life. For the ones who I've named out loud this morning and the ones who I've not named but are in my heart. For the way that you personally have loved me through them, I give you great thanks. I thank you that the foundation of my faith has been built by the gifts that you've given me through them. God, I ask very plainly for having shared this time with the rest of these people here this morning, I pray that you personally would be working in our hearts to build us up so that we would love the people that you've given us to love as friends better than before being together this morning. Not so that we could uh, feel regret for the way that others haven't loved us. Help us put that out of our mind, but so that we could pursue true friendships. And then God, as we do that, I pray that the house of faith which you're building for Renaissance Church to live in would become what the world needs. That our godliness and our self-control and our endurance and our knowledge, that these virtues would thrive because we love each other and we lay our lives down for one another. God, free us to do that in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.